tonight I want to talk about confronting reality. Because when we come into this practice, that's actually what's happening. We're meeting reality. And I think that's why generally this uh, practice isn't so popular. Because most people don't really want to live in reality. <laughs> and sometimes when we start to even, you know, we begin the practice and we start to touch into reality, we go, oh, I'm not so sure about this. I think I'd rather go back and do what I was doing before. You know, but sometimes, you know, the, the practice catches us, the teachings catch us, and we want to go back, but we can't because we know better. You know, there comes a point where we, in a way, we get captured. And we can feel that tension, too. I'm sure sometimes some of you have felt that, where it's like, you, I remember this one metaphor I had for myself one time, which was that, I had taken some medicine that had gone into my cells, into my body, and I couldn't get it out. It's like, I, I don't want this medicine. <laughs> like, take it away. It's too, it's too ruthless. It's too hard to face reality like this. So that's really what we're doing here. And by the second day of a retreat, you start to feel it. You start to sense it that you're dropping more and more into what's real, into reality, which isn't always so pleasant, isn't always so lovely uh, when we're really honest with ourselves. This really, this practice of vipassana, this Pali word, this Pali is the language from the time of the Buddha that the teachings came to us in, this vipassana really means to see things clearly to see things as they are, to know things as they are, which is a reality for us. And what that means is that we start to understand and engage in our experience, not so much from our mental conceptions, not so much from our imaginations and our fantasies about life and the world and myself and other people, but we start to actually confront, face, what's true, what's real. And as we take this practice even further, what really happens is that we're really touching into a reality that is not constructed by the mind at all. A reality in which the constructed mind or the conceptual mind just really doesn't even have a place. A reality that is so pristine and so immaculate and so whole and complete by itself. It doesn't need this small little thinking mind to enter into it, to try to understand it or to make sense of it. Reality is just what it is. It's clear, it's present, it's immediate, it's right now. And so what do we need this small mind for, you know, and yet the habit the conditioned habit, the habit that we grew up with is to develop this mind and then to, to think that this mind is actually telling us something that's true and real about, about reality. So we start to shift. It's really a shift as we, as we follow this path more. It's a shift from the imaginary to the real. That's one way of talking about it. We go from the imagination 
to what's more real here and now. So in order to be more in reality, what that means is that we actually have to be here. We have to be here. And I think that this is really a fundamental question for us, is do you really want to be here? Do I really want to be here? Because we can, you know, we can play it as, we, as if we do, but when push comes to shove, we are constantly having to ask that question again and again. Do I really want to be here? Which means, do I really want to live in reality? <laughs> because when we start to see what's actually here, you know, all the, all the conditions of some of the real deep pain and the suffering and the unpleasantness, the agitation and the worry and the disease, some of the things that Howie was speaking about last night, that's all part of reality. Sometimes we think that the meditation, there can be some um, imaginings about that meditation is going to take us into some kind of um, magical world, you know, that we can transcend all of this, we can escape into this um, light, boundless, loving, clear place where we're not separate, where we're unified, where we're connected to all things, all the time, in every moment. You know, we want that now. We want that now. So sometimes we can, it's often what we, what we, the way we think about our meditation practice, and I think that sometimes how we get into a struggle is that when we have experiences of reality that aren't so pleasant, that are uneasy and difficult, it's like, I want to get out of here. I, I want another kind of experience. I want an experience that's clear and bright and easy. And I had that at the last retreat. And how come this retreat is so difficult or so painful? And so we get into that struggle of wanting to be somewhere else than where we actually are, which is reality, <laughs> which is the here and now reality. So we may need to ask this question, do I really want to be here? Do you really want to be here? This is a, actually a very profound question for us. And it may not be a question that you can answer very easily. As I ask this question, you may actually go, well, you know, the truth is I'm not sure. <laughs> I thought I did, but now, I'm not sure. You know, and we can feel ambivalent. We can feel unsure about really embodying, really arriving, really living our life in the way it's truly happening. And what that means, too, is having to give up quite a lot of our usual strategies and our usual uh, uh, habitual behaviors. Because when we're caught in our habits and our old conditioned strategies, we're not really here. We're actually pretty much living in the past with those old habits that are ruling us. They're controlling us. And so arriving here has, has an implication that we're not controlled by the past. We're not living in the past. We're not living in those imaginations of the past and our fantasies of the future based on the past. So it's really quite a 
quite, quite a profound question for us. Because these patterns of mind are actually very strong. These strategies that we learned as we've been growing up, these are very, very strong. And, so, and we do need to overcome these in order to experience ourselves as free, to experience ourselves as fully alive and really engaged. We do need to overcome these patterns, patterns that Howie was speaking about of, of clinging and grasping and uh, the, the delusion and the aversion that arise around that. These are very strong, the, the tendency to want to be somewhere else than where we are. And it's not bad or wrong if we don't really want to be here. It's not like there's something wrong with you. What's, what matters more is that you're really honest with yourself because that's what's true, that's what's real. And we want to know that. We want to know what do you want? What feels right for you as you're finding your way in this very complicated existence in which we find ourselves? When I was teaching here, uh, the three-month three course, uh, year before last, uh, there was a yogi that I was interviewing, and I had this interesting conversation with him in one of the interviews. And he came into the interview talking about all, he was daydreaming a lot, you know, daydreaming about all the important things that he really wanted to do in his life. And then he said, well, you know, I guess I should return back. I, sh I guess I should come back to the present moment. And I just kind of looked at him. I said, well, do you want to? Do you want to come back? It seems that he was you know, very happy in his daydreams and his fabrications and his imaginations about all the wonderful things he wanted to do. So it kind of, you know, it kind of startled him a little bit when I asked him that. Do you really want to be here? Do you really want to come back? Because you know, we have this imperative that we put on ourselves, you know, I need to get, you know, I need to be back here. I need to return. I need to be in this moment, the present moment. But how come we don't? You know, how come we do get lost for long periods of time? Or we do get caught up in our old fears and our aversions and our habits? And how come? And how come we sometimes aren't using much um, maybe determination or perseverance to really overcome those habits. Because if we did, it means that we're going to change. We're going to be living our life in a very different way. And it's likely that if those habits aren't imposing on us in quite the same way, that we're going to be more here. We're going to be more present. Because what's here when those habits start to drop away? when those old strategies start to drop away. One of the things that we start to experience is a lot more vitality because those habits are usually bound up in our old beliefs and our ideas and our images and all of these internal assertions about how I'm supposed to be and who I'm supposed to be and how I should be and how other people are supposed to be. And that's a lot of mental activity. And sometimes we're not so conscious about it all. It can be a you know, little bit below uh, awareness, but it's very active. It's very active. It's what's driving us, what's controlling us. So as we bring more awareness to that, as we bring more understanding to that, we start to see these 
these patterns, these habits that are driving us, this, this desire, this grasping, this aversion, ways that we space out and we get confused and we get lost, all these possible potential obstacles for us to really be here living our life with vitality and engagement. So the Buddha gives us an invitation, you know, he, he has a map for us, this beautiful eightfold noble path that has been given to us from, you know, 2,500 years ago to present time. And, and, and reading the text, there's, there's um, kind of, lo- sometimes I love the attitude that I come across sometimes from the Buddha, where he'll say, Here, here's a practice. This will help you. This is something that it will benefit you, will be of benefit of you, for you. Take it if you'd like. It might be helpful, but if you don't like, that's fine too. You know, it's not like there's any kind of, you know, this is what you need to change your life, and if you don't do it, you're really, you know, going to drop off the deep end. It's like here. This is here for you if you like. It's like medicine, you know, it's like sometimes the Buddha was thought of as like a doctor or a surgeon, you know, just offering, offering medicine that's going to heal us, that's going to make us well, because sometimes we can feel like we're not so well, right? We don't feel so good in ourselves. And so it's like being offered something that can help us heal, make us well. And so it, the Buddha has this wonderful way of saying, here, Take it if you like. And if you don't like, it's all right, too. The Buddha also said that um, I took care of my liberation. Now you take care of yours. Because this is all I can do. You know, all I can do is offer you the way, offer you the path, the map. But I can't make you walk it. So it's really up to us, you know, it's up to us. And that's why I, I think this question, you know, well, do I, do I really want this? Do I really want to be here? Do I really want to have to change these habits, change these conditions of my life that I can see are causing me some pain, causing me some uh, suffering? Do I really want to change? Because these teachings, the, Buddha, the Buddhist teachings, offer us a path to the end of suffering, the end, nada, no more, (laughs) no more suffering. I kind of like that idea, you know, I like it, I'm kind of going for it. I think that, you know, there's some possibility there. And for me, I don't really see that there's anything else really of much importance to do at this point of my life, because these teachings are just so compelling to me. What's possible just feels so compelling. So when we actually do choose to practice, as you've done, make the choice to walk the path, really what we start to do when we sit down on the cushion and we start to take a look, we're actually exploring the conditions that actually take us away. That's what we're looking at. When we sit down, we say, okay, I really want to look. I really want to pay attention. We just keep seeing how it's so hard to be here. (laughs) 
And then, and then with that awareness, with that um, mindfulness, we start to track and to name, to look at all those possible hindrances or obstacles that get in the way of really being present. It's, what I like about these teachings is actually they can be really simplified. They're very, very simple in some ways. I mean, if you, you know, get into the whole kind of Buddhist cosmology and psychology, you know, it can really seem tremendously uh, esoteric and overwhelming, especially when Buddhism went out to all the different countries, and you have Tibetan and Chinese and, and Japanese and Vietnamese, and, you know, and then Buddhism taken on all these different flavors, and to try to comprehend all that can get a little overwhelming. But we try to keep things really simple here. <laughs> and, and that's what's so beautiful about the practice, is that it actually can be very, very simple which means we just pay attention. We just pay attention. And then when we pay attention, we see what interferes with us paying attention. And that's it. And if we're interested, then those things that we see that keeps us from being here and paying attention become uh, useful, becomes knowledge, becomes wisdom or insight. That's insight which is vipassana, insight meditation, becomes insight. So then we can apply those insights to our behavior and to our actions as we proceed along, as we go along. And the wonderful thing is that we always have another moment, don't we? We always have the next moment. We didn't get it right this moment. We have the next moment. And then we have the next moment. And then we have the next moment. And if we're lucky, we, we, we will have a long life will have a long life to actually keep applying the wisdom of our insights. And I always hope that I'm going to get more moments because I have a lot more to learn. <laughs> I have a lot more to understand. I feel, like, I feel like after all these years, I'm just starting to get the hang of it. It's like, oh, I'm just starting to understand. You know, this is this kind of beginner's mind. You know, we have this wonderful phrase in Buddhist practice, which is called beginner's mind. And beginner's mind isn't just something that we practice. We start to feel it as we practice more and more because we realize how much more and more we realize how much we don't know and how much more there is to understand and how much more there is to apply and to um, work with in our own experience. This is really part of what the beginner's mind means. It's like, we're just getting going here, you know? And those of you who are, uh, have practiced for a while know what I mean. You know, for me, I started in the late 70s. And um, it's, I, just feel, I do, I'm not just saying that. I actually do feel like I'm just starting to understand what all this is about, which makes it very juicy and interesting now. You know, it just gets a little bit more juicy. So we encounter these obstacles, we encounter these hindrances, and Howie began speaking about these, what are called the five hindrances. The Buddha laid out these, particularly these five hindrances. And that's what we encounter when we start a retreat. The first day, the second day, the third day, sometimes into the fourth day, the fifth day, maybe by the sixth day, the seventh day, they start to quiet down a little bit. That's why doing a longer retreat can sometimes be a little bit easier, because you can get over these hindrances to the, to, for the most part. 
uh, as you start getting a little quieter and a little bit more settled. So if you still feel like you're working with some of the difficult obstacles, that's completely natural, Com completely natural, because it does take a while for these to start to settle down. These five hindrances being the grasping mind, the mind that wants, wants an experience, whatever that experience is, it's usually not the one we're having. So we want some other kind of experience, which is the opposite to the aversion, to the pushing away, which is a second hindrance, and they work in tandem. Because when we're wanting an experience, we're pushing away the experience that's here, or one that we imagine is going to come. So we're, we're working with this grasping and aversion, grasping and aversion, which are the first two of the uh, obstacles or the hindrances that we encounter. And that's pretty much what they, cal they can calm down as we um, practice more on a retreat, but they just become more subtle. And, and we still need to really pay attention to this movement of grasping and aversion, grasping and aversion. And then we have the other pair of uh, 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 drowsiness, sleepiness, dullness, boredom. And then the opposite one, the restlessness and worry and agitation, the ones we were, how he was speaking about this morning. And then the fifth one being doubt, which is a self-critical uh, doubt, undermining, the way we undermine ourselves in the practice. So this is what we encounter. We encounter these. And these particular mind states, they're called difficult mind states, very strong conditioned mind states, that actually keep us from fully resting into our present experience. And these mind states have the characteristic to reject our experience. They arise out of some rejecting idea. So when I'm grasping onto a particular experience, I'm rejecting the one that I'm having. If I'm rejecting my experience, that's clearly I'm rejecting my experience, aversion. But even uh, uh, boredom, dullness, sleepiness is a kind of, depending on whether it's, a, uh, it's happening because of a physical condition, which is sometimes why we're sleepy, um, uh, or because we're very, very busy, we've overextended ourselves and we're very, very tired. But oftentimes, sometimes the dullness, the sleepiness just comes because we don't, it's a habit. We don't want to deal with what's here. And it's easier just to go to sleep. I mean, sometimes you may find you do that when you go home from a long, busy day. You say, you just want to pull the covers over your head, you know, just like enough. And it's a rejection. It's, a, can be, it's another form of rejecting our experience. Agitation and restlessness and worry, all that inner agitation and worry, rejecting what's here because we're so worried about what might come or what's going to happen or, or feeling agitated about what is happening. It's like rather than just being fully present and connected to all of that inner agitation. But with restlessness, we can, it's very complex. There's a lot of aversion. There can be doubt in it. There's grasping in it. There's uh, all kinds of things in that restlessness that we can find when we start to examine it. It's a very complex mind state. And we think that when we're feeling restless, we should just be able to stop it. It's like stopping restless. 
but it doesn't work, does it? Because <laughs> it's very deep. These patterns are very deep. They have very deep roots. And so there's a lot that has to be understood. And the only way we can understand is by paying attention. In a way, putting ourselves under a microscope, using ourselves, becoming the experiment that we're looking into. So, so that's the awareness. That's the the uh, mindfulness is we start to examine ourselves, our mind, our body, our emotions, our feelings, so that we can understand these very complex. You know, when I was first starting the practice, I really did think that something was wrong with me when I saw this going on, you know, all these complexities of these states. Something was wrong with me and I just needed to get over it. You know, just like get over it. <laughs> I had no appreciation for the complexity of this conditioning, of how this personality, this character that I am, got formed, and all the history, all the events from history, and how they all went into forming who I was at that time. And I just, you know, this naivete of just thinking, just stop it, you know, <laughs> just stop it. Like, like that's, you know, of course it didn't work. You know, if it worked, then, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be sitting here telling you what I'm telling you right now. <laughs> you know, I'd say, yeah, just say stop it. <laughs> and it'll stop, you know. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. You know, that's why this is called insight meditation, where we have to understand through this con continuity of paying attention over and over and over and over again. So we want to look at this rejecting behavior. And when we're rejecting these rejecting behaviors, <laughs> so we're rejecting the sleepiness, we're rejecting the aversion, we're rejecting the restlessness and the doubt, and we get angry at ourselves and upset with ourselves, and why is this going on, and, which is called a multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> you know. And then things get very compounded, and then you know we can feel aversion and judgment towards the fact that there is aversion towards the aversion. You know, it's like it gets very big and compounded. So, so we we start to we see if we can bring. At some point, we have to step out a little bit, and just see if we can, just pay attention to what's going on without running away, without escaping, without trying to manipulate and strategize and, and try to change our experience into what I want or what I imagine should be happening. It's like, okay already, let me just feel this. Let me just see if I can stay here. Even though this is really difficult, even though it's really painful, really complicated, I don't understand at all what's going on, but let me just see if I can stay here. Keep my butt on the cushion and not fly out the door or you know, run for that cup of tea or run back to my room to lie down or take a shower. And let me just see if I can stay or keep my feet on the ground. If I'm walking, just keep my feet on the ground. Keep walking. If I'm sitting here, just keep sitting and see if I can keep my mind awake and bright and alert. Keep my mind here. And you know, that's really all our practice is. 
That's something that's been so incredible to me, is to realize that that's all I've ever had to, been asked to do, is just stay here. Just pay attention. Just pay attention. And that simple instruction gets more and more profound. It's not like you get it right and then it's, okay, then you know what you're doing. It's just that, pay attention. It starts opening up more and more and more and means more than we could ever imagine. So this rejecting behavior, these strategies. In Buddhism, we talk about the self, or what, to be more accurate, it means the problematic self, that suffering self, the self that is causing us a lot of difficulty. In, in psychology, they, it's called the ego self. And this rejecting behavior is the activity of the ego self, of the problematic self. When, if you want to understand what's meant in Buddhism by the self that we're trying to have insight into, all you need to look at it is at the dukkha, or the suffering, the pain, the difficulty, the grasping, the aversion, all the ways that we're manipulating, controlling, and uh, uh, wanting to change our experience from what it is, and that's the ego self. It's very busy. <laughs> Have you noticed? <laughs> very, very busy. It has all kinds of ideas and all kinds of imaginations and views about what should be happening, who you should be, how you should be, where you should be, <laughs> what kind of experience you ought to be having by the second night of a retreat, you know, and imposing that and demanding that and being very strong about its views and opinions and ideas. And it's painful. It's painful because we can't rest. We can't just relax and be. Just be. Be where we are. Be who you are. Be where you are. Relax. Because the ego mind ha just it doesn't know how to relax itself, in itself. That mental activity doesn't know how to relax. So, we're, so we draw on something else. We draw on something else. We have all these tools and these resources that were being offered here to help us relax, to help us let go, to help us settle, so we're not getting so caught up in all that fabrication. All of this rejecting activity has anger in it. It has fear in it. It has confusion in it because it doesn't know what's true. It doesn't know about this reality that is not constructed by the mind, the ego mind. The ego mind can't know about a reality that it's out of touch with. So it's constantly trying to get you to find some way to be happy and peaceful, but it has no clue. How can it know? Because this reality that I'm speaking about is not a con mental, mentally constructed reality. It's a reality that we begin to touch when we let go of all of that, when we're not so identified with all of that. 
when we start to poke holes in that, then we start to breathe. And I know you've had moments, I know you've had times on this, in the, since you've been here, where you've let it all go, walking in the woods or walking by the pond or just sitting and just, just for some moments, just like, oh yeah, what's the problem? You know, and everything feels easy and soft and maybe some expansion and space. But then the old strategies come back again, you know. But at least we, we have glimpses, we have tastes, we know. There's something in us that knows what's true, what's real. And in fact, that's what keeps us going. And the more we taste it, the more we want it because it's so delicious, it's so lovely, because it's us, <laughs> it's true, it's our nature, it's the nature, it's the nature of all things. So there is a, a longing, there is a longing, and that's different than grasping. It's an inner longing from the heart, from the being, from our, our, the deepest part of ourselves to want to come home come back home to what's true and real. Living, living at home where we can rest, relax, settle, and enjoy, be happy. So that part of our mind, that mental activity keeps us very, very busy. And I think Howie might talk more about this uh, tomorrow night, this activity of the mind is this activity becomes a filter over our experience. And so we can't see very clearly. And then we can become impatient and frustrated and disappointed and doubtful about what's happening for us. And then if, if we start to identify with all of that and that's not seen for what it is, that can, we can feel like almost like we're pulled into a vortex into a, a painful vortex where we c it can get more constricted, those difficult states of mind become more constricted and we can feel a kind of helplessness or hopelessness. We can feel a kind of despair or kind of depressed. Like it just, we can't seem to find our way out. Everything seems very murky, very confused. But it's just being, we're being pulled for further into that identification of the self, of ego mind. And so fortunately, there are many, many tools, very, very many resources to help us to find our way out of that vortex, that murkiness, back into something that is more true about ourselves and who we are than that which is so much based on our old conditioning, based on the past, our past influences. My teacher, Hamid, some of you know that I'm involved with uh, this uh, uh, group called Diamond Heart, the Diamond Approach, and one of my teachers is Hamid Ali, who's the founder of that work. And he says that when we're caught in this mental habit he says, this activity causes a thickening of our consciousness that cuts off our intimacy with ourselves and everything else. It's like a thick consciousness, and it can feel a dull, like a dull, thick 
a kind of opaque consciousness and we, we feel cut off from things. We feel cut off from ourselves and from life around us. And he says that it, it cuts off the warmth of being ourselves. I think that's so beautiful. It cuts off the warmth of being ourselves. Because when we're truly ourselves, it's warm, it's light. You know this. You know, there's an ease in it, and there's a, it's almost like the sun comes out, right? It's like the sun came out. Ah, oh, I feel so much better. So it's like we, we see through, when we, when we, when we see through these, these con- this conditioning, these habits, it's like we're purifying or, or we're diluting that thickness so it becomes thinner and more transparent. We feel more transparent. We feel lighter. We feel easier, e- at ease. That's one of the, the blessings of the metta practice is we, we, we say, may I be at ease? May I feel at ease? And that ease comes from that lightening that, of, that, of that density or that thickening of that sense of self. This, this self, when I talk about self, I'm talking about that problematic self that's involved in all of these manipulative and controlling activities of mind. We start to be free of that. We freed up of that. And we actually feel it more within our, within our bodies, within our experience. So we're finding refuge in a way we've talked about this a little bit. We're finding refuge from our mind. Refuge from our mind. This is from um, Ajahn Chah, um, one of the elders in our tradition, in the forest Thai tradition. Um, It's called About This Mind. About this mind, in truth, it isn't really anything. It's just a phenomenon. Within itself, it's already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. The real mind doesn't have anything to it. It is simply nature. It becomes peaceful or agitated because the moods deceive it. The untrained untrained mind gets lost and follows things. It forgets itself. Then we think it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever. But really, this mind, this trained mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful, really peaceful, just like a leaf that is still as long as no wind blows. If a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. If it doesn't follow them, it doesn't flutter. So we train the mind to know those impressions and not get lost in them. Our practice is simply to see the original mind, which is already peaceful. Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. Our mind that is already peaceful, this this reality, this reality, with a capital R, that is unmoving, that is still, that is peaceful. Once we start to take away some of these obscurations, these obstructions, it's like peeling away the layers. It can seem like we're, you know, got a lot of 
stuff on top of us. And we just start peeling that away. That's what happens in our meditation. And then we get lighter. We start to feel lighter <laughs> because we're unburdening ourselves of all those old painful conditions. Today there was a yogi who uh, in the interview was talking about her own uh, experience with this since the retreat and she was she was noticing how much was you know she was still experiencing and feeling of the past conditions just coming in and so she was working with a a mantra a kind of a mantra means a repetition of words and saying acceptance 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 really trying to and, and supporting herself to really be here be here not let herself be uh, seduced by all of those conditions and saying acceptance acceptance and then she said she finally started to feel like she was um, get going underneath the experience she said that's all I can say going underneath the experience and it's very much like that we start to feel like we're we're going underneath and she she was pointing to her heart and feeling like there was a kind of refuge she didn't use that word but I, I felt like she's touching the refuge underneath underneath the burden of of all of that those past conditions that flood into the present moment and working with the acceptance the acceptance and the acceptance is the heart it means that's where we're bringing in the care and the kindness and the the love and the compassion acceptance I accept what's happening I accept what's happening this is from uh, Stephen Levine and for a long time I was thinking it was Alice Walker and and so I want to correct that um, because Alice Walker's name was written on this piece of paper with another quote and now I know it's Stephen Levine so I want to really correct that Stephen Levine was one of our original uh, teachers uh, in the early days and many of you know this of this his precious teachings sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind Cold self-interest, insistent fear and judgment, whispered insults, vengeful fantasies, triumph and despair. A conditioned unfolding so impersonal we take it personally. Sometimes aghast at the casual cruelty of even minor fears and celebrations. Sometimes it breaks my heart to watch my mind. And sometimes it stays broken long enough to touch even this pain with love. Sometimes the mercy washes even Mrs. Macbeth's hands, turns tragedy to grace, and makes it all worthwhile. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. Sometimes it breaks my mind to watch my heart. And so when we shift, when we make this shift from being identified and engaged with our mental constructs, all that mental activity, which is all conditioned from the past, when we make this shift to reality, we might say, one way of talking about it, is that we're making a shift to our heart. In some ways, we might say the mind drops down into our heart. And that's why so many people start pointing to their heart when they feel like they're more present, when they're more grounded, when they're more, more here, when they start to arrive. It's like, 
like I'm here. <laughs> I'm here. We, we can feel the, the heart starts to open. There's a sense of more care, more kindness, more love, more connection. And there's a, can sometimes we can feel a kind of openness, almost like a spaciousness, that we, uh, we can almost feel like it's in a chamber, like an inner chamber. There's more space within ourselves, within our body, within our torso, and that can expand out. We can feel like our heart is starting to expand, starting to get bigger. We start to become more, more sensitive and more attuned to the way things are, with reality the way it is. So we have these practices. We have these practices. And there's four orientations that I want to speak about briefly. We've been talking about them since we've come uh, at the beginning of the retreat. The first one is our mindfulness practice. This mindfulness practice of returning, of coming back. Each time we notice that we're getting lost, we're getting seduced, we're getting pulled away into our mind of the past and the future, we return. We just come back. This is the, the simplicity of this practice. This is, and it's not just from um, the Buddhist practice. This is from St. Francis de Sales a Christian monk, who said, bring yourself back to the point quite gently. Even if you do nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back a thousand times, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be well employed. Bring yourself back to the point quite gently. That's it. You know, if, maybe if we just said one thing and we just said it again and again, you know, bring yourself back to the point quite gently. Your hour will be well employed. But unfortunately, it's not just that simple, is it? There's so much more that goes on, so then we need a lot more understanding and a lot more strategies. But this is the basic practice, this practice of returning, of remembering. A second orientation is the orientation towards our body and really um, practicing being more fully in our body. Feeling a sense of, we've been speaking about this, feeling a sense of sitting, knowing where you are, feeling your body on the cushion. If you're walking, feeling your feet on the ground, feeling your hands, your arms, your legs, feeling your breath, really orienting your attention more fully into your body. And when you do this, you're actually shifting your attention away from all that mental activity, down. It's, that's why it's called grounding or anchoring, because we're bringing the attention down. And it's away. It's not just down, but it's away from all of this as much as we can. So it gives us a resource. It gives us a support or a way to anchor our awareness so that when that activity starts up, we actually feel more here, more present. It's a way of, 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 of uh, strengthening that quality of presence, this mindfulness of body. In a way, the mind and the body come into the same place and time, rather than the mind being 
who knows where in, in time, you know, maybe last week or last year or maybe 20 years ago or 60 years ago or wherever, we come, we unify. It's a unified consciousness where the mind and body become one. We're here in the same place. That's what gives us a sense of being present, right? We like it. It feels good that we don't have that tension of being split off and fragmented in lots of different directions. So we orient towards the body. Thich Nhat Hanh said that when we do it, it's like a child who returns home after a long journey. Sometimes it can feel like that, like we've been on a long journey, right? <laughs> and then we come back. Mm-hmm. The third orientation is one of inclusiveness, where we bring this attitude of allowing just what is, right where we are, right here, whatever it is. And that's where we begin to peel off these layers because we might be feeling resistance and aversion and self-rejecting and all of that. But can I include that? Include that right here. This is what's happening. This is where the rubber hits the road. And try not to add a whole lot more on top of it not to bring more aversion to that resistance or more judgment to that resistance. Or if I'm judging myself, not judging myself because I'm judging myself. We want to pull these layers off so we can start to get to more of the direct experience of what's happening. Not being afraid of our experience because these things will happen, right? As we are more honest, as we're more truthful, This is what happens. This is what we see. We want to see it because this is what gives insight. This is what brings understanding so that we can begin to release these burdens of our past. And the fourth orientation is what I call, and I like speaking about these days, called sensitive attunement. So as I'm more mindful and present in my body and am including, I have an attitude of more inclusiveness, it allows for me to be sensitively attuned to just what's happening moment to moment. And then I'm able to increase my capacity for the conditions that are arising because I have the resources of presence and mindfulness and awareness with some wisdom, hopefully, thrown in there that accumulates over time. So becoming more attuned. And all this sends a message to myself that I am truly interested to know myself. I'm truly interested in connecting with myself. I want to know my own heart. That's what we say to ourselves when we come and we do this very difficult practice. I want to know. I want to know who I am. I want to know what reality is. I want to live life in an authentic way, in a true way, in a compassionate way. We live a compassionate life when we're attuned to the way things are. All these things start to come together. This beautiful practice that we're engaged in. 
And I have two different things I'd like to end with, but I'm going to choose one. Now, which one is it going to be? <laughs> Eeny, meeny, miny. <laughs> it's just like that. I mean, I, don't, I think it would be too much to read both. I'll read the other one another time. Okay. Hafiz wins tonight. The other one is Naomi Shihab Nye, who is an is, is Israeli-Palestinian poet who I love. Um, but I'll read Hafiz, this uh, Sufi poet, master teacher from the 16th century. I know the way you can get when you have, ha- when you have not had a drink of love. Your face hardens, your sweet muscles cramp. Children become concerned about a strange look that appears in your eyes, which even begins to worry your own mirror and nose. Squirrels and birds sense your sadness and call an important conference in a tall tree. They decide which secret code to chant to help your mind and soul. Even angels fear that brand of madness that arrays itself against the world and throws sharp stones and spears into the innocent and into oneself. Oh, I know the way you can get if you have not been drinking love. You might rip apart every sentence your friends and teachers say, looking for hidden clauses. You might weigh every word on a scale like a dead fish. You might pull out a ruler to measure every angle in your darkness, the beautiful dimensions of a heart you once trusted. I know the way you can get if you have not had a drink from love's hands. That is why all the great ones speak of the vital need to keep remembering God. So you will come to know and see him as being so playful and wanting, just wanting to help. That is why Hafiz says, bring your cup near me, for I am a sweet old vagabond with an infinite leaking barrel of light and laughter and truth that the beloved has tied to my back. Dear one, Indeed, please bring your heart near me, for all I care about is quenching your thirst for freedom. All a sane man can ever care about is giving love. All a sane man or woman can ever care about is giving love. So we're trying to get sane together. Let's sit for a couple minutes.
thank you for your kind attention. And it's 8.30 now. We have a half an hour before our next sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.